This episode of Naval Gazing is sponsored by valleygivesback.org. Adding a Valley charity to your estate plan creates a lasting legacy that tells future generations what causes matter to you. Your action will inspire others to follow your lead and make a difference. With a plan gift, you have the power to impact the Valley community forever without affecting your current lifestyle. Learn more at valleygivesback.org, an initiative of the Valley Community Foundation. Plan now, give later, and impact tomorrow at valleygivesback.org. For hundreds of years, we brought you the news. For the info, we gave you the clues. Owners' profits were always sky high. Hey everybody, welcome to Naval Gazing, the Valley Indies weekly podcast. My name is Eugene Driscoll. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by valleygivesback.org. On this episode, we're speaking, I hope, assuming I set up the microphone correctly, we're speaking with Kara Rochelle, the Derby resident and Democratic nominee in the 104th State House of Representatives District. We're also working on a episode with her Republican opponent, Joseph, Joseph Yauman, so stay tuned. Kara is running for the seat representing Ansonia and Derby that is currently held by Linda Gentile, who is retiring. Kara, once again... Thank you for coming to the podcast. And thank you for having me. And you are being recorded. This is now working. All right. Uh, and the other person on mic is longtime Valley Independent Sentinel reporter, Ethan Fry, who's going to be conducting the interview, I hope. But I have a problem with shutting up. So, Ethan. Thank you. Take it away, boss. Cooking with gas. Awesome. Kara, uh, again, thanks for coming. Uh, just the first of all, the CT Post recently reported that you do not actually live in the district you're running to represent. How did all that happen? That was a fun surprise. Um, this was uh, entirely, um, this was a clerical error. So uh, what had occurred is we got a call on a Monday saying, hey, we just got word that there might be an issue. Um, so I immediately, you know, called the proper authorities, you know, called the Secretary of State's office, called House Leadership and said, what's going on? Um, I've been voting for Linda Gentile for years. Uh, every time I go in to get my ballot, they hand me one for the 104th and say, this is your district. And if you went to the uh, State General Assembly website, which is how you look up who you, your representative is, and you type in my address, it said that Linda was my rep and that I lived in the 104th. So apparently what had occurred after about a day and a half of all state authorities um, digging through to find out what happened um, was that uh, in 2011, when the area was re redistricted, the maps get sent to the registrar's office, and the registrar needs to populate it in a computer system. That then goes into the voter file, which is what all of the candidates use to look up their addresses and whatnot. Um, so it was wrong in every system. It was wrong in the, the van files, the voter files. It was wrong in the registrar's office. It was, it was wrong when everyone, the 12 houses on my block, were registering, were going to vote, and it was wrong on the General Assembly website. So you you live across the street from the district, I do, essentially. Is I that do. Correct? It's so. a, you know, it's it's quite a, a funny piece of luck. Um, but I am more than happy to move because these people, you know, this district matters to me, uh, and you know, they're lucky enough to have a candidate that would sh that shows up and will show up and will move. And you, if you win, you. Say oh you yeah, absolutely. You have to move that farther that's in. The I, that's the that's the law. Okay, just another uh, sort of topic in the news recently. Uh, where do you stand on Governor Malloy's $10 million toll study? I don't think it was necessary. Uh, I, you know, I don't agree with Malloy and everything he's done. Um, you know, when I decided to run, I, you know, the state party called and I said, I'm just giving you fair warning that I'm not uh, going to toe the line about Malloy. Um, and I won't. I, I'm a very independently minded person. I don't think that money was necessary. The reality is that's $10 million to get our, train, our trains doubled uh, in this area. And I think that would have been a better use of the money if we're going to spend money in the DOT in that way. And let me just interrupt. Kara, if you could try to talk yeah, into that sure. microphone because you're, you're going off to the side a little bit. All right. Sorry. No problem. Uh, and then do, uh, just by way of follow-up, do you have uh, 
uh, uh, stance on the issue of tolls generally or one way or the other? So that's an interesting question. Um, the reason is this, is that our community is split 50-50. I've talked to a lot of people and half understand the pragmatic need to raise more revenue for the state and half just don't want it. And so I've talked to a lot of people and said, well, how do we you know, how do we appease everybody? You know, what is the compromise? What do we do? Because um, I'm more interested in doing what's right by this community. And so um, the best proposal that I've heard came from a resident that is against tolls, um, but understands the pragmatic need for them. And they said, listen, why don't we, why aren't we charging um, big rigs and out-of-staters? And then we just have residents get a easy pass, and then we don't charge residents. And that seems pretty reasonable to me because my focus is keeping tax burden off the backs of the working class. Okay. Uh, one thing Representative Gentile has talked a lot about recently is the issue of regionalization. Uh, late last year, there was a meeting here in Ansonia where she said, it's just the reality. It's the new world we live in. We no longer can fund 169 towns. That's she was speaking as from like the, the point of view of the state government. Uh, what do you think the future holds in that respect in, in terms of regionalization? Um, there's been a lot of fear about it. There's a lot of residents that are concerned. Um, I think that what's important to to reiterate for folks um, and remind them is that this is a two to four year study. Um, and so nothing is going to be done uh, in the immediate. And on top of that, it would need to go to referendum in both towns. All residents would need to vote on it. And it would have to be approved by both towns. You're talking about the school regionalization, yes. Ansonia Derby yes. uh, Committee. Yes. Um, so do you have... Do you, do you have uh, are you, are you do you have a stance one way or the other on that or so are you in general regionalization is a good idea however we need to look at the numbers i am uh not somebody who jumps in without looking both ways and really seeing what's going on you know i'm a very data-driven person so you know we do the study we look at how this will affect the schools and how you know and regionalization in general for other other parts of local government if it's going to increase quality of service and decrease costs, then that's a no-brainer. But if it's not going to do that, um, and if the residents don't want it, then we need to respect the residents. And I guess they're like... You, I mean, is that happening now with that committee that's been formed? Do you think... So the committee's only had two meetings. Um, the committee is in its, its infancy. Um, in the last meeting, uh, one of the people on it said we haven't even started looking at the numbers yet. So I think it's it's premature for anyone to be waving a flag saying absolutely or absolutely not and that we need to everyone needs to kind of you know let this play out and let's see what the what the report says and so that and that's from what i've heard that's the mission of that community. yeah do you think they're going to yeah. do that which is a great idea we need to be doing that your opponent was one of the driving forces behind its creation he serves on it uh when you say you know people like that was an issue that came up at that last meeting, as you said, people concerned about, is this a foregone conclusion? Do you think he's open-minded enough about it? Or, you know, does, do you think he's, you know, reached the conclusion that we, we should regionalize? You know, I, I, I think that his, his public comments about it are his public comments about it. Um, I don't want to be, you know, attacking him for the sake of attacking him. That's, that's not what I'm about. Um, you know, I hope that he is not, pushing for this for the sake of having a feather in his cap. I hope that he's really taking a step back and thinking about the people that are on the ground and how it'll affect them. Um, and I think that, you know, in general, if everyone does their job right and we look this through carefully, that we can come to a conclusion that's that's good for the town. All right. Uh, another issue sort of in the news recently, Joe Ganna, like this is the, the Democratic uh the Democratic primary is next week, as is the Republican primary, mm -hmm. August 14th. Um, you come around a little, uh, so she doesn't have to turn her head. Uh, the, yeah, okay. The uh, the primaries are next week. Obviously, there's a uh, races, primaries for governor in both parties and the under ticket. Um, for the Democrats, it's Ned Lamont, uh, who's run for Senate and governor before, versus Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gannon who served prison time in prison for corruption. Mm -hmm. Now he's running for governor. Uh, will you support his candidacy if he wins the primary August 14th? At this point, I'm staying out of the primaries. Um, you know, I, I really want to see what the voters want. Um, I uh, appreciate that Mr. Ganim has taken responsibility and openly owned his actions. That being said, um, 
you know, I, I know that Ned Lamont has brought jobs into the state in the past year, a, a lot of them. And so uh, I think that the, the voters in this primary will be the decision makers on this. And then I need to see, you know, we don't even know if Ned's going to run third party. We don't know what's going on yet. So no, no real conclusion, I guess, to that, to that. Yeah, yeah. My, my focus has been on this race. My focus has been on the people out here, which has been a phenomenal thing to get to know everybody in the community a little more closely. Okay, so you can't say whether you'd support Ganim or not. Yeah, if we asked if you, you yes or no, if he gets the nomination. Honestly, I've just taken a step back and really been focusing here, and that's the God's honest truth. I really genuinely have, have not gone to events for either of them. I, I have not donated to either of them. I am taking a step back because what matters right now is making sure that the people out here are represented well. And that's, that's not a political line. I'm not really a politician. This is just straight up. This is what I want to do for the community. And this is where my focus is. All right. Uh, now that we've asked about like some sort of some, uh, you know, issues of the day, uh, just tell us about your like basic background. Where were you born and raised? What did your parents do? Education? So I'm a Valley person. Um, I grew up in Seymour. Uh, I grew up in a family that was very service oriented, which was the best education in the world. So my grandmother was the registrar of voters for 40 years in Seymour. I grew up, you know, running around City Hall when I was five, not realizing that every kid didn't get to do that. Um, and my dad's been a volunteer firefighter since he was a teenager. So I grew up in a household where when the tone went in, dad was running out the door because somebody in the community needed help. Um, he's a chief. Um, he's actually FD2 right now in Seymour. And I want to say happy birthday to him because tomorrow's his birthday. Um, happy birthday. He's yeah. Well, FDT? What? Uh, so, so there's multiple layers of fire chiefs. There's the main oh, okay. fire chief and there's a second in command. Right, right, command. right. Okay. So when I was a teenager, he worked his way up and he was... FD1, he was a chief, oh, okay, uh, the right. main chief. Um, and then he was a commissioner. Uh, and he's actually the emergency response coordinator for all of New Haven County. So, for example, when the tornadoes hit, um, my father, there's seven counterparts across the state. There's eight counties. There's eight, eight of these guys. And they coordinate all of the different fire departments for major disasters and things of that nature. So that's my dad. Um, and it was a wonderful education in how to build teams, how to work together with people, and putting the community first. Um, and that's very close to my heart. So that was my childhood. Um, my dad was also works at, or worked at Sikorsky's. He just retired. And my mom was a home daycare provider. Um, and they were just, you know, they raised us to be so involved. I was volunteering since I was a kid. Um, I tell this story sometimes because it really kind of defines um, how we were raised. And I think it's an important one to share is uh, when I was a teenager, there was a firefighter in Seymour, and his, he had been building this house up on the hill for a while and uh, living in a small house with his family. And wouldn't you know it, right when it was almost done, it got struck by lightning and burned to the ground. And so, you know, the whole, you know, the valley pulls together for each other and always has and it always will. And that's one of the best parts about this community. And my parents were kind of dumbfounded the next day and said, well, what do we do now? And they decided they got it in their head to have a barn raising. And I remember as a teenager coming home, my mom had notebooks spread all over the kitchen table and she's, the phones are ringing off the hook and she's getting local places to donate and she's coordinating volunteers and skilled workers. And th it took a while to plan, but they coordinated barn raising and got that house back up. Hmm. And that's, that was a lesson to me about tenacity and organization and bringing people together. So that was my childhood. I, uh, I went to college in New York. I went to Fordham University. Um, I stayed out there for 10 years. I ended up in uh, high-end restaurant management. So I had a staff of 50 under me. What did you study at Fordham? I actually studied English and education. Um, so I have a bit of education under me. Um, I did a master's as an undergrad. And so being the little you know, go-getter I was when I was younger, um, doing a master's when you're 21 is a lot. Um, I took a gap year and ended up running a two-star restaurant by the time I was 23. Um, which is not to say that uh, it sounds glamorous, but it's restaurant management. It's a lot of hard physical work too. Um, but it was a wonderful experience because I learned, you know, how to build a team that likes working with each other, you know, and how to work with lots of different personalities and, um, you know, how to cultivate this, this focus on the greater good, um, which you have to do in restaurants. So I did that for 10 years. And when I was turning 30, um, I was thinking about it and said, you know, I, where do I want to lay down my roots? Um, and decided I wanted to come back to the Valley. This is home. Um, and New York is fun, but you can't replace what the people are out here. 
So that's interesting. Cost of yeah. living is a little lower here too. Thankfully. I mean, there's that, but there's, I mean, you're not going to, New York is great, but the folks out here just care about each other. And there's that small, that small town sense uh, of things. And so, you know, I came back and about I don't what year did you come back just in terms six of six years ago? Okay. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm here for the long haul and I'll leave in. Uh, and so, um, I came back and I've been running a nonprofit affiliate at Yale university and, you know, I got involved with politics a few years ago, um, basically because I didn't like how politics was going. Um, it wasn't in the grand plan. I've always been, you know, conscious about issues. I've always been focused on things like, you know, making sure that the working class is doing well and, and advocating for, you know, better way of life for everybody. Um, but it was really, um, you know, looking at the Sanders cycle and saying, what, what does this party become? Um, were you, you know. always a Democrat? Were you like raised Democrat? Were your parents political? So we didn't really way? talk about politics in my in my parents' house. Um, you know, a lot of the firefighters stay out of politics because they need to work with both both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, but my grandmother was very involved, and she was in a very old school F- FDR style Democrat. You know, it wasn't about the modern liberal elite stuff. It was about you know fighting for the working class and doing things that help your local community. And it was a much more down to earth, pragmatic thing um so i have fond memories of that uh and i was you know always raised to be involved in the community but i didn't really turn to politics until i said okay um we need more talent we need more innovation we need more people that are efficient and effective and frankly i am the the oldest of the millennials and witnessed the repercussions of the crash um and know that you know our generation versus you know, the generation above us, you know, at, at the age of 35, our generation ha- is making the same amount as previous generation was 30 years ago. So the, the pay 30 years ago with inflation adjusted was 34 grand. It's 34 grand now. The difference is that the cost of living has gone up 20 to 30%, you know, and, and healthcare costs are out of control and education costs are out of control. And so my generation is having fewer kids. They're, they're struggling to make ends meet. They don't go on vacation as much. They're, you know, worrying about bills a lot more. And if my generation doesn't get involved and help steer the ship and say, okay, you know, it's our time to really start looking at these numbers and, and, and doing something about it, who's going to do it? Uh, in April, in a Hartford Current article, Lori Pelletier, the president of the Connecticut AFL-CIO, said the 2018 election is a pivotal contest that could determine the future of the union movement. Many of the Republicans running for governor have promised to reopen labor agreements and wring concessions from state workers. The soul of the movement is at stake in this election, Pelletier said. Um, and then pursuant to what you, know, what you were just talking about with you know, FDR, New Deal uh, politics, um, you know, d- contrasted to that, do we need to rein in uh, salaries, benefits, and pensions, post-employment benefits uh, for public sector employees as part of this next political cycle? So I think it's a, it's an interesting thing. There's a lot of uh, venom on both sides about this, and uh, I don't think that venom helps the conversation. Um, it's a reality that the the tier one pensions are no longer available to new employees. You know, they're getting tier three and tier four pensions, which are very different and don't cost nearly as much for the state. It's also a reality that these people were paying into their pensions for many years. And, you know, we made a promise to them and we should keep that promise. Um, These are our firefighters. These are police officers. These are our teachers. You know, they're not the enemy. And, um, you know, if we look at states that have, you know, right to work, which Republicans, you know, try to bandy as a good thing, um, we know that the states in the country that have that have far lower wages than the states that don't. And if we're trying to build the middle class, that's not the way to build the middle class. So, you know, my father is a teamster. He worked at Sikorsky. You know, I know what a union job does uh, for a family uh, and for a community. So, um, no, I don't think that it's appropriate to attack the unions, um, especially when, you know, if you talk to anyone that's in one, you know, my, my boyfriend's a firefighter uh, in Bridgeport and a volunteer out here. And, you know, they need their, their pay. They're doing dangerous work um, and they deserve to be compensated for it. They're paying into their pensions. We need to honor that. 
And then just a few, like a few other policy-related uh, um, issues, I guess. Are you in favor of uh, Medicare for all? I think that we need to get there. I do, and I and I, I know that there have been uh, attacks already for me saying that. Um, but you know, this is as American as as apple pie or FDR. Um, you know, he wanted to, this was a New Deal, you know, uh, platform piece. And the reality is that, and 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 it actually it was quite funny for me all week I was I couldn't get enough of it um were you are you aware of the the Koch brothers study about universal health care yes uh, the yeah that came out yeah that said so, it would be- so the Koch brothers um for anyone that's listening and doesn't know are um they have a lot of money and they funnel it into right-wing campaigns um specifically to bus unions kill health care um basically attack the working class and so uh, they did a study. They funneled money into millions of dollars into a libertarian group. And there's nothing wrong with libertarians, but they were using that group um, to try to prove that this the, the, the Sanders Medicare for all system was bunk. And it actually proved the opposite. Uh, and Sanders issued a thank you uh, to them because what it proved was that it actually is $2 trillion less expensive I uh, will put $2 trillion back in the pockets of families and states and local businesses if we go to Medicare for all, and it will also cover 300, billion, uh, 300 million more people. So we can have healthcare for all. We will not have co-pays. We will not have you know, people worrying about whether or not they can afford to get that extra test for their father or mother. Um, and that's, that's the reality of it. The math is there. I think like the study said it would be like the overall cost would be would be cheaper, but I guess mm-hmm. it would be shifted. I guess you know a lot of healthcare now is is through uh, employment things mm-hmm. like that, and, and private healthcare company for profit healthcare companies. Mm-hmm. If we went to Medicare for all, it would be there there would it would have to be funded through taxes more. So I mm-hmm. guess like isn't the the uh, sort of argument with that study saying like, sure, it would cost less, but there'd be higher taxes to fund it. So here's the trade-off though, is that then people would not be paying out of their own pockets for healthcare and their employers would not be paying out of their pockets for healthcare and their employers can pass that savings along in the form of raises. So when you, when you actually look at how this would play out in you know, the repercussions of doing it, it would be cheaper for everybody. There'd be more money in everyone's pocket at the end of the day. Uh, another one, uh, marijuana legalization, yes or no? Yes. Uh, can, can I sure, can I yeah, them yeah. on that? <laughs> no, <laughs> let's just, I, let's I, just I know get I'm going right to get uh, tagged as the renegade liberal, and that's really not what I'm about. Um, and we do hear, I've heard that just in like, uh, you know, being at Archie Moore's on yeah. a Thursday night, you'll I'll hear um, eavesdropping. I, and yeah. the knock against you is, oh, well, she's too left wing. That's what you hear. I don't but even you've heard like that the as term well. liberal. I'm a progressive, and I think they're very different. Um, and, and, you know, so the reason why I think it's important, uh, to, there's multiple reasons to do legalization, but the, the big main one is one, it's already here. It's already in the States around us. And two, we know from multiple studies in multiple States that in States that have legalization, it drives down the opioid addiction rates by about 25%. And that's a conservative estimate in some States, it's much higher. And if we can stop that public health crisis, and you know, keep families together. Kids aren't going into the foster care system. People don't need the you know additional um, services, and uh, and it you know takes the weight off the police departments too. There's a thousand reasons why this is good public health policy. In addition to the tax revenue that we can invest in schools, in addition to you know keeping people out of jail for you know something that is you know already here and akin to a glass of wine to a lot of people. Uh. Fifteen dollar minimum minimum wage. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, any elaboration or is that so? I met a, a a woman that I won't I won't share her name, but I met a, a mother um, at a door when I was knocking, and she's got two kids. Um, one is about to enter the school system in a year or two, and the other one's in the school system. And she works, and she's making minimum wage right now, and she can't get ahead. And she's working full time, and she's working very hard, and. You know, the reality is that if you're working 40 to 50 hours a week, you should be able to pay it, you know, be able to pay your bills. And if you're not, then there's something wrong with our system. Um, Our system right now hasn't really uh, brought minimum wage up with inflation, uh, which is why people are working harder for less money. Tuition free college. We need to get there. And I think it's important to note that 
uh, Tennessee did tuition-free education this past year. And Tennessee is a Republican state with a Republican governor. And he just said, listen, this is just smart policy. So this is not a, a Democrat or Republican issue. It's recognizing that you need more than a high school diploma in a lot of occasions. You need a technical certification um, or some other type of paperwork uh, to get to the good paying jobs now. Um, so, you know, community colleges, technical schools, uh, and eventually four-year state schools. Florida has it. Tennessee has it. We should be doing it, too. Do you have any idea how Connecticut could pay for something like that? Since we're I don't think such we can do it tomorrow. Month? I don't think we can do it tomorrow, and I and I don't want to sell rainbows and sunshine to people. I think that we need to be pragmatic about this. But I think that you know we can start with community colleges and technical finishing schools. Um, you know, Mass, uh, New York just passed that too last year, um, and we can go from there. And as far as the state budget, there's there's other reasons why we're broke. Um, you know, and we can adjust that to allocate revenue. What are some of those reasons and what should be allocated So, in a different way? So <coughs> I, me. I, I, lots of people, um, you know, have been yelling about how the state budget is broke and to a large degree it is. And, and I think we're all frustrated about it and I wouldn't be getting involved if I thought everything was okay. I'm getting involved because things are not okay. And I'm getting involved because we need to put things back on track. Um, so in the wealthiest state in the country, and with Fairfield County being the wealthiest county per capita in the whole world, I find it interesting that our state is saying that it's broke. Um, and then I look at the tax code, and I look at you know where we're spending our money. If you're broke, then he's going to say to you, am. yeah, well, <laughs> most people are yeah. these days. Um, you know, if, if he's broke, you're going to say to him that you need to watch your budget. Absolutely. And you also need to get another job or get better wages or do something else to raise revenue. Right. And in this state, you know, we talk about cutting the budget, but you couldn't cut your way out forever. You can certainly say, and, and absolutely, I'm, I'm four square four efficiency. I'm four square four innovation to bring down costs. But how much further can we cut without looking at revenue and saying, you know, what's going on with our tax code? In Fairfield County, on average, they're paying 5.5% for their taxes, and the rest of the state, they're paying 9 to 11%. Is that fair? Is that going to help the state? You know, or we look at the carried interest loophole, and we're looking at hedge funds managers that are, that are skirting the tax code through a legal loophole at the tune of $500 million a year. And we look at what our deficit is, and how is this responsible? You know, when, when so few people are getting away with, you know, they're not worried about the price of groceries. They're not worried about if they can pay for their car insurance this month. And a lot of our residents are. And so I'm here for that. I'm here to say, we can do both. I don't want to raise a dime on anyone in the middle class or the working class. In fact, I think we need to be doing things to alleviate the tax burden in an honest and aggressive way so that people have money in their pockets and they can get a leg up again. But for the rest of the state, this 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 small group that you know that can that that have a big say in what happens in Hartford, I think we need to stand up to them and say, you need to pay your fair share. We need to put money back into the budget, and we need to start funding programs again. Hi, this is Eugene Driscoll, most likely interrupting myself to bring you a message from our sponsor, ValleyGivesBack.org. Adding a Valley charity to your estate plan creates a lasting legacy that tells future generations what causes mattered to you. Your action will inspire others to follow your lead and make a difference. With a planned gift, you have the power to impact the Valley community forever without affecting your current lifestyle. Learn more at valleygivesback.org, an initiative of the Valley Community Foundation. Plan now, give later, impact tomorrow at valleygivesback.org. And then I guess the, the counter argument to that that I've heard is that, well, then they'll just leave Connecticut. They'll Fleeing just, the state. They'll just be the yeah. That is a boogeyman. Um, and I can tell you that for a few reasons. First, there's books about this. Um, and the reality is, is that when you have, you know, they've got palatial mansions. My neighbor across the street uh, works in, uh, in uh, HVAC. And he does big HVAC for, for large buildings. And he also does the homes in Greenwich because they literally, some of them have ice rinks in them. When you have that type of wealth, it is no skin off your back if you pay an extra million a year. 
And so, you know, they aren't going to be that upset. There's books about this, how they really don't leave. When you have that type of established wealth that goes that deep, it, you don't leave. Um, and the other reality is that the, the proposals that we've had, the policy proposals, have uh, been put forth in such a way where, for example, closing the carried interest loophole would only happen if the states around us closed it too. It would trigger into effect when New York and Massachusetts and New Jersey and Rhode Island closed theirs. That way they can't just up jump the border. I mean, this is just smart policy strategy. Do we need stronger gun control laws in Connecticut? You know, I've heard that I'm trying to steal everyone's guns too. It's like this liberal boogeyman that's going around. Um, I actually have a lot of friends that like guns and I'm middle of the road on this. And so what I mean by that is this, I think that our laws as they stand have been effective and I don't, I don't know if we need to go any further with them. Um, I would very seriously look at any legislation carefully and talk to all sides about it. Um, you know, I've got friends that are gun owners. I actually took my NRA gun class because I think it's hypocritical to not know about gun safety, you know, when you're trying to make laws about it. So um, it would really depend on the bill. It would depend on what all sides have to say. But the laws that we have in, in effect now have been effective. Are you, are you referring to specifically to there was a few more restrictions passed after Sandy Hook to make, you know, things moderately more restrictive, I guess. Would, so is that what you're referring to specifically? I'm referring to background checks mostly. Um, the reality is, is if you're a law abiding citizen, then the background checks don't affect you. And, you know, if you pass your background checks, then you can legally and safely have your guns. Um, so, no, I, I, I think that that's. The background checks is the strategy, um, and I think it's a reasonable one. You talked about uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016 for mm -hmm. president. Was that your you were a, a coordinator of that yep. uh, in Connecticut? Was that your first sort of serious foray into politics? That was, yeah, that was my first serious um, direct political action. Um, uh, it was, you know, I started out uh, just saying, you know what. He's he's right. His criticisms of the party are, are right, and and what he's talking about about the working class is right, and the influence of big money in politics is absolutely, you know, destroying our country. Uh, and we need to do something about it. We need to get money out of politics. We need to return the focus on what's affecting people's daily lives. So I got involved. I organized in Connecticut. I helped in New Hampshire, and I helped in Massachusetts. And then you talked about labels a little earlier. Bernie's described himself as a democratic socialist. Would you describe yourself that way? No. Okay. No. Would you like apply any sort of, you know? No, I think that anyone that knows me personally and well knows that it's pretty part, hard to put a label on me. I don't really neatly fit into any box. Um, you know, my main focus is what's going to pragmatically help people. And that doesn't always mean towing the line with anybody. Progressive, would that, would you call yourself? Progressive is a, is a more accurate term. And then uh, specifically to this race, what made you, was there any one factor that made you decide to run for the, the 104th district or, or how to, what was your decision making there? Because the criticism will be from, uh, I assume from your, uh, or I, I don't know if your opponent's going to say this, but there's, well, you don't have experience on the local level and usually traditionally in Connecticut, you kind of, you know, start off on a, on, on a tax board or a board of aldermen and then try to work your way up. I think that being a political insider is one thing. Um, I think that being somebody who's uh, earnestly for the community and has other credentials, you know, I served on the ethics board for a little while and also... In Derby. Yep, yep. Um, and I've been involved uh, going to public meetings. You know, I, I read every single article you guys put out about everything that's happening in the community in both the towns um, and actually all the towns in the Valley. Um, you know, I... I I know how to deal with the team. I know how to, I'm a policy geek. So I don't think that having a fresh set of eyes is a, is a bad thing. And then I interrupted Ethan's question, but he was saying, you were basically asking what specifically motivated you to run or go ahead. I don't want to. Or, well, yeah. Was there, did you, or did when, when, uh, when Linda Gentile announced she would, like if she had run for reelection, I would assume she wouldn't have, you, you wouldn't have challenged oh, her. Oh no, I primary. wouldn't have challenged her. She's so, wonderful. Like, did you just see when she retired, like that was an opportunity or, or what was the thinking, I guess? So I don't think opportunity is the right word for it. Um, it was more looking at, 
you know, the fact that we were losing, you know, she's been a lioness for this community. She has been phenomenal at advocating for, you know, funding for brownfield remediation and the downtown developments and, and you know, various pieces of legislation that are going to help the working class out here. She's been wonderful. Um, you know, I've been in touch with her for a while now, and uh, she's gotten to know me, and um, she's gotten to know my tenacity and my focus on this community. And so when this came up and, and she decided to retire, it was really the same thing as, you know, what my dad's been doing his whole life. It's, you know, the community needs someone that's going to fight for them. The community needs someone that's going to, you know, be dedicated and authentic about this and really put, you know, every day into it and put your heart into it. And that's where I am with it. Uh, conventional thinking is predicting a quote unquote blue wave in the coming November 2018 elections uh, with voters who dislike President Trump really motivated to deny Republicans control of Congress. And typically the a first term president's party does usually get a setback in the first midterm elections. Uh, yet in Connecticut, outgoing governor, Democrat, Governor Deanna Malloy is deeply unpopular and it seems especially so in the Valley. And the Demo- on our Facebook page, yeah, well, yeah, essentially, Oof. public enemy number one, essentially. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the Democratic Party's hold on the state legislature seems, you know, more tenuous than ever. What What's your prediction about what's going to happen in November here? You know, it's funny. I actually had another interview exactly about this, and I think that I don't buy into the red versus blue. I think that the, the Trump and Malloy thing will cancel each other cancel each other out to an extent. I think that it's important. Our voters out here and voters in general in this state look at the person more than the party. And I've found that a lot where, you know, people are absolutely within their right. And and I'm frustrated, too. We're all frustrated about, you know, the tug of war has been happening on the state level. And, you know, maybe it makes me a bad Democrat, but I wasn't a huge huge fan of Malloy either. Um, But... You know, I, I think that folks are ready for candidates that are honest and want to work hard and are dedicated to the community. And I don't think that that has to do with party. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I think if the election showed us anything, it's that people want authenticity and people are sick of political status quo. Yeah, I mean, I guess like just just hearing from people on the street, like I, I've heard from, from people talking about the 2016 election, like you know there's the argument you know bernie would have won um even i think conservative republicans i've talked to would would have conceded like at least bernie was authentic i guess it speaks to like the larger struggle for power where we hear talking we hear talked about in the democratic party of you know should we move to the center to try to capture disaffected republicans or do you try to turn out the people who just aren't voting or didn't vote in 2016 or previous elections? Do you have any thoughts about that sort of debate that's going on within the party? I know you that you want me to kind of say yes, it's centrism or yes, it's you know going more left, but I don't really see it that way. I really genuinely don't. I see it as um, you know I've got friends that are libertarians that support me. I've got friends that are Trump supporters that support me. I think that it has far less to do with, um, you know, who's pandering, the centrists pander to the Republicans or, you know, or the, the, the lefties thumb their nose at the Republicans. I think it has far less to do with that and far more to do with who's got good policy. I think that we're in a point with our country and with our state where people are paying more attention to the nuts and bolts of politics. I think that there are a lot more people that are politically engaged, sometimes for the first time in the past two, three years. And they want to see actual work getting done. And then you I, you sort of touched on this earlier, but like the, the Republicans in Connecticut, um, they say the Democrats have been in control too long, monopolizing power. They've gotten the state into the fiscal mess by raising taxes. And now businesses are fleeing the state. Um, now they're calling for big cuts in taxes and spending. Are they wrong and how so, if so? So it's an interesting thing. It's always easier to be the quote-unquote underdog because then all you have to do is attack the other side and blame them for everything because they have the power. Um, The reality is that uh, this past two years, um, the state Senate has been tied 50-50. 
And while the House um, had four extra votes for Democrats, um, they were voting with Republicans more often than not. Um, so it really was a fully bipartisan, if not Republican-leaning, House and Senate this past couple years. Um, and I think that uh, it's a lot of grandstanding um, when the reality is is that nothing gets done unless the parties work together because it's such a close uh, mix in there. So it's very easy to, to, to blame one side when, you know, we've got people that have been in there for 20 years that were just as responsible for the CBAC crisis, the pension crisis, um, but want to point fingers. You know, we've had Democrats and Republicans as governor um, kicking the can with that pension crisis, which caused our budget crisis. Um, so I hold everyone that's been in there for the past 20 years responsible for that. I guess like the Democrats used to have basically veto proof majorities, uh, when there were people point to like, hey, Republican governors signed these labor agreements, but weren't they essentially just held hostage at the time by the the huge Democratic majorities in the House and Senate? Uh, up I mean, in they had free will. They 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 chose to do that, and and frankly, uh, it's easy to look backwards. Um, but I'm interested in what's happening right now. Um, you know, I I'm Malloy is gone, and the other. People who were governor before are gone. We have to look at where we're standing right now. And we need to look at our current state budget and look at our current issues and say we can point fingers and blame all we want or we can start putting people in that want to get the work done and we can start honestly saying we have to work together and we need to get this done. And we've asked you about like a bunch of specific policy uh, issues and proposals and, and, and ideas. Um, are there any specific ones that you know, we haven't asked about that you either would bring forward or you've heard from other candidates or representatives or senators that would be uh, important to addressing um, the state's issues that, again, we haven't asked you about directly, but you'd want to highlight or bring up? So on the state level, um, not particularly in the state level, I can talk about a few things that I am focused on locally. Um, you know, there's a few things that we really need to advocate for on the state level to get done around here. So lawmakers don't just argue for laws, they advocate for funding for the community. And so there's a few major things that I think that we need to be really focusing on. And when we're making decisions about who we're going to send up there, we need to think about this. Um, we've got a lot of economic development that we want to get done around here. And there's a few main puzzle pieces to do that. Um, you know, my, my focus is education funding, it's jobs, it's economic development, and it's making sure that, you know, our older residents aren't fearing that their health care is going to get cut. My brother's disabled, and he was part of that group that nearly had their, their Medicare cut last year, their Medicaid cut. So, um, you know, I know very personally what it's like to get that letter saying you, you, you're going to lose your health care. Um, and there were 113,000 people in the state that had that problem. Um, thank goodness they straightened it out as they should have. Um, but as far as local things go, um, first, the school districts in Ansonia and Derby get about 50 to 60% of their budget from the state. That money needs to continue to come in very dearly. And we need someone that's going to advocate for that and recognizes that having enough teachers and having um, you know a quality school system matters even if you don't have kids in the school system. Your property value goes up or down based on how well the schools are doing. Um, so this affects everybody and it affects, uh, you know, our tax base in the community, um, and it affects our kids. Um, you know, I know that the K through eight in Ansonia is about to have 30 kids per class, uh, because of the teacher cuts and that hits close to home for a lot of people. So we need to really focus on that. Um, and it would be my job to advocate at the state level to get more funding and to help these schools find more grants and funding. Um, the second thing is jobs. Um, a big focus, uh, I'm not even an office, but a big focus, something I've been working on is um, focusing on advanced manufacturing. It is the th one of the top three largest growing fields in the state. Uh, there's 13,000 open advanced manufacturing jobs right now as we speak in this state that can't be filled because we don't have enough trained and ready people to fill them. Um, and there's community colleges with advanced manufacturing programs that are only eight months long, and they can't get people in fast enough. They've got a wait list. They've expanded as much as they can, and they've been looking for a while now to put a training facility in the Valley. And I absolutely want to fiercely push and help to get that in. Uh, you know, those jobs starting pays between 15 and 30 bucks an hour. That is a great career move for somebody who doesn't want to go to a four-year school or can't afford it. Um, 
So I want to focus on that. I want to focus on, on, on economic development. Um, the two big pieces, you know, like I said, my, my parents threw a house together when somebody's house burnt down. I want to help throw this house together. The big things are brownfield remediation, which is not a sexy thing to talk about at all. Um, but it's all of our biggest, most marketable pieces of land that are not marketable because they need to get cleaned up environmentally, like in Sonia Brass. In Sonia Brass. I was going to say, go over to City Hall. You could talk about that with them for, for hours. Yeah. Brownfields. They yeah. And, and hopefully I will get to work with them on it because we've got, you know, 40 acres in downtown Ansonia that is waterfront and it is walking distance to the trains and it's walking distance to the rest of downtown. And why we don't have, you know, mixed use shops, restaurants, businesses in there. It's a matter of putting the puzzle piece together and getting the state and federal funding. So we can actually get that back online, get it on our tax base, which will help lower taxes for the community. Um, so brownfield remediation in both towns is a big puzzle piece for our collective thriving future. Um, and the other puzzle piece, which sounds like it wouldn't be a big deal, but it is, is the train lines. You know, the train lines uh, are so infrequent that the, the stats for last month said the trains were only on time 65% of the time. And the trains only come, I think it's every two hours right now. Um, We've been here an hour and we haven't heard yeah, one. Yeah, 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 It'll yeah, be a few minutes, yeah. I think. Um, I, I know yeah. a resident that has to take them and it drives her crazy. She's crying almost every day about it. Um, but, you know, if we get those running every 30 to 40 minutes, regularly and consistently, one, it will, again, increase property value, which will help lower taxes. Two, it will attract residents who don't want to drive down 95 to work and can just buy over here or rent over here and hop the train every day and drink their morning coffee. And three, it will help attract businesses. So these things are a lot of my passion is getting this up and running. And I've already been in touch with the DOT. I know the price tag to get the trains doubled in amount. I know the timeline with the signal system. How much is that to get them doubled? $10 million. Oh, I was going to say $100 trillion? No, it's okay. actually, it costs $30 million for Danbury. It only costs $10 million for us. And is that the siding system? or is No, it, okay. so the signal system's already been funded and they're working on it. The signal system um, will be done by 2020. Uh, at that point, we'll have the ability for trains to pass each other. Um, the next puzzle piece to actually getting more trains to pass each other is getting us off of the old push-pull trains and getting us onto the new trains. So when I spoke to the DOT, what was said to me at the time was this. Um, the reason why they didn't buy trains for the Hartford line and they're renting currently is because they are waiting so they can buy a whole new fleet for the state because buying in bulk is cheaper. And so with this big ticket item, they are pricing out right now and hoping to buy a fleet for the state in the next year. And provided we have a governor that doesn't cut the DOT funding, we will be able to have double our trains on the Waterbury line. They are targeting to get double the trains. We will have the signal system. It will take four to five years to build the entire fleet for the state and get them all on the rails. But that is the, the prize that I think that people should look towards as part of our economic development plan. All right. How are we doing on time? Should we? Yeah, we're okay. okay. I mean, Good. it's been right. 45 minutes. But my only question for that, like... Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I don't think you'd find anybody that disagrees with the fact that if we had improved train service, our downtowns would at least be in better condition because it's almost embarrassing. And we're at the Ansonia train station. Half the time I give people directions, there's they have no idea there is a train station here, people who are from here. Yep. But wouldn't we have to raise taxes, though? Because that's, that's so much money. Uh, wouldn't we just have to, wouldn't, and that's exactly why I'm just thinking when this is eventually published, the mailer that goes out saying like, oh, you have this wish list, but we'll all be broke because it'll be a massive No, so, so here's the funny part is that there, part of the problem with the state right now is that they throw everything into the general fund and then fight like cats and dogs about it. And there's a lot of political, gra political grandstanding um, and not a lot of work gets done because everyone's playing tug of war for their pet projects. I think a smarter strategy is to look at our budget and start earmarking things and saying this goes towards this. So for example, last year in the legislature, the legislature passed a law saying that all new car tax revenue must go towards the DOT now. It's not being thrown in the general fund. We're not fighting about this. We're starting to dedicate revenue streams towards our essentials. So, for example, if we decide to go towards tolls for big rigs and out-of-staters, not for locals, but for big rigs and out-of-staters, we can dedicate that revenue stream 
back to the DOT. And what was said to me by the DOT is that if we're kept at our current levels, they are prepared to buy that fleet. Don't hold me to that. That's what I was told. Um, but that's where we are with it is that um, if we get cut for the, the, the DOT was already cut by 15%. They had 15% of their staff cut last year. Um, but if they're able to maintain, they will be able to get this done. Okay. Sorry, Ethan. No, that, and uh, I guess you, you would talked about uh, regionalization. Um, and uh, just one thing that we've heard occasionally is Ansonia and Derby used to be one city back in the day. Um, isn't hasn't the time come like the the tax revenue is deteriorated so much that shouldn't shouldn't these communities explore just merging totally back um just to you know have more efficiency in government you wouldn't be paying you know as many people uh police public works that sort of like as long as we're talking about education why not i i don't think that the residents have an interest in doing that but i do think that they have an interest in saving money so for example with the fire service i know a lot about emergency service because of how i was raised and um i know that already with the fire service you know they have soft regionalization so you know some towns have different sets of equipment and they share it or they regionalize to form a task force for various things um i think that we can do soft regionalization um just which is just essentially you know that sharing of resources um you know for the betterment of the community uh and we don't need to necessarily change our name it's it's interesting i i learned recently that birmingham was actually the downtown of derby when derby and ansonia were one it was actually called derby mm-hmm. um I spoke to a local historian who had lots of interesting things to say about the community. It should be Durbonia. That should be the name. Yeah, Ethan's just passing on his personal preference to destroy both cities. Exactly, uh, yeah. To regionalization, huh? But I get. did you have any other no, no, questions? No, no, I guess my final question would, would be... Sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's tough as a candidate to get the word out there. Uh, just this has been sort of a, at least from my perspective, sort of an under-the-radar race uh, thus far. Yeah. Uh, so where can people learn more about your candidacy and what you stand for? Where, where should they go? So I have um, a Facebook page. I, I need to start posting more on there. It's been mostly, um, you know, little bits here and there about my platform and, and a lot You're of at a lemonade stand stuff. around the corner. For oh, me. my God. Those kids were great. Um, yeah. <laughs> those kids were fantastic. We're friends um, with that family, actually. They're yeah, wonderful. Our, our kids, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the father has a... Uh, uh, He's an engineer, like a, and he's yeah, he does yeah, all the he, science stuff. Yeah, yeah they he have a cool science par- stuff this for kids. This is probably way off topic, but anyway, sorry. I it, it, yeah. You do know what I'm talking about, yeah. though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got a um, for Ethan. Since you don't know, he does you know for kids' birthday parties instead of doing you know being a clown, mm. he does science experiments, big fun kids science experiments. Like for launch parties. a rocket into the air. Nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cool. So these are our neighbors. This is the type of people that I'm meeting in this community. It's very cool. Um, but beyond so that, that's Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Facebook, um, we're just starting to get stuff online um, soon for our uh, campaign website. Um, but I've been out talking to people. Um, we're going to start doing, uh, you know, hey, meet me here for lunch. People can come down and chat with me too. Um, and I'm assuming at some point there might be a debate. I'm not sure. So we'll be, we'll be around. Um, we'll be connecting with the community. Uh, and we should have the website up soon. Okay. Kara Rochelle, I want to thank you for uh, coming and talking on this podcast. Thank you for having me. And uh, on behalf of Ethan Fry, this is Eugene Driscoll. We'll see you next time.